It's good to see you this morning. Eureka! Eureka! Now that might be an expression that comes to your mind when you read John 1 verse 41. The setting is, Jesus is teaching, and among his auditors are two would-be apostles, not that they want to be, they don't know that yet, but they became apostles, and that was Andrew, and I think the other was John. And as Jesus turned to walk away from his teaching, they followed him. And Jesus knew they were following. He turned and said, what seek ye? And they said, uh, Lord, where do you abide? Where do you live? He said, come and see. And so they spent the day with him. And then we read that Andrew findeth his brother Simon Peter, and he said, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Well, the story behind Eureka is this. There was a king called Hiero II. He was a king in Syracuse, uh, Greece. And he gave a certain amount of gold to an artisan for making a crown. And when the crown was delivered, the king suspected that some of the gold had been stolen and silver substituted. But how to prove it? And so he sent for his wisest philosopher, Archimedes. Now Archimedes was also a, a mathematician, he was an inventor, and the king turned the problem over to him. Now Archimedes, not knowing the solution, decided to relax and consider the problem in a warm bath. And as he climbed into the brimful tub, some of the water overflowed and Archimedes raced into the street, still in the buff, shouting, Eureka, Eureka, which in Greek means, I have found it. Now, what he found is the principle of measurement of the volume of an irregular solid by the displacement of water. Since gold is heavier than silver, he realized that a pure gold crown would displace more water than one in which some silver had been used. And when he made the test, he proved that the goldsmith had indeed been cheating the king. Now with Andrew, all Christians can shout, Eureka, we have found the Messiah. And you look in the Greek, you'll find that Eureka with different endings is found twice in that verse. Jesus is the one absolutely unique figure in all the long history of mankind. There is no other that really resembles him. His entrance into the world was unique, being born of a virgin. His teaching is superior to that of any other man. His moral character was flawless, faultless, sinless, and his experience with death was unique in that on the third day he came back to life. And his influence for good in the lives of men has been unequal. 
by any other man before or after his time on earth. Eureka! You take Jesus out of the Bible and you have a worthless book. His life is our example. His death is our salvation. His resurrection is our hope of life in a better world. And his ascension to glory is our assurance of final glorification. If he is what the Bible says he is, he is our everything. But if he's not what the Bible represents him to be, he is nothing and we are without hope. And the Christian is of all men most miserable. Uh, Paul, would you want to give us a chalkboard? We have one that we want to look at for the Messiah. And we want to use it as an acrostic. And we'll take each of the letters, starting with the letter M, referring to Jesus as the Master. Jesus is called the Master a number of times in the New Testament, referring to him as a teacher. Uh, I don't know if in America we use the term Master to call our teachers or not. I know in England the, what we would call a principal is called the Headmaster. The other teachers are masters, but he is the headmaster. Well, they addressed Jesus as the master many times, talking about his teaching as a teacher. In Mark 12, 37, we read, And the common people heard him gladly. They hung in wonder upon the words of Jesus, listening with awe and rapture as he spoke. His words were down to earth. He used many figures of speech, parables, allegories, metaphors. And people could understand. He didn't talk down to them. He talked on their level they could understand. An example is found in the Sermon on the Mount, I guess the whole sermon. But let me pick out a, a portion in Matthew 6. We'll start at verse 25. Jesus said, Be not anxious for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. For is not the life more than the food and the raiment? And he says, Behold or consider the birds in the heaven. They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not of greater value than they? And then he points to the, the birds, I mean to the lilies. Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin, and yet your heavenly Father clothes them. He said, consider Solomon in all of his glory. He was not arrayed as these lilies of the field, which today is, and then cast in the oven tomorrow. Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall, with all shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. 
And your Heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Be not therefore anxious for the morrow. For the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. When he closed that uh, lesson, he called the Sermon on the Mount. We read in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were astonished. They listened to all of it, and they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught as one having authority and not as their scribes. There's another thing, or another incident, when uh, they were astonished at his teaching. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest or to take Jesus and bring him to them. But they went, there he was teaching in the temple, and they, they listened. Everyone was listening. And evidently these guards were mesmerized with what they heard, and they went back without Jesus. And when they came back, they, they said, why didn't you bring him? And they answered in just four words. Never man so spake. They were mesmerized, just like the rest. At his teaching, he was the master, the teacher, he was the master teacher. Also, let's look at the next letter, eternity. Jesus is an inhabitant of eternity. When we turn to John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. Now, the word in the beginning is used twice in those three verses, John 1. The same in the beginning we find in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus, who is flesh, came to be among us, is eternal. He was the creator, unchangeable, immutable. He's described in Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ, and notice the verb. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and yea forever. We would say he was the same, he is the same, and he will be. No, according to the Bible, he is. He's in the present tense. He's eternal. He is always who he claims to be. Now, we're talking about his nature, talking about his attributes. Someone raises a question, but doesn't the Bible say that God repented? And doesn't repentance mean he changed his mind? And so God evidently changed. Well, let's clear that up. His nature and his attributes do not change. But what changes? When it speaks of God repenting, it's not speaking about God sinning or any wrongdoing that he has to repent of. No. His attitude 
and his conduct toward man is what changes as man changes. I'll give you an example. In Jonah 3 and 10, now God had commissioned his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. These people are so wicked, I want you to go there and preach to them. Well, Jonah finally got there. And he began preaching, and yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I don't know what Jonah had, but he had something in his, his preaching. They all believed him, and they all repented, including the king. He put on sackcloth, ashes, and he told the people, now we need to repent. Maybe God will be gracious and not overthrow us. Well, Jonah 3 and 10 tells us that God saw that they repented. And he changed his mind. He repented. He changed his mind in regard to their conduct change. God repenting simply means a change of attitude and conduct towards men. When men become so wicked, now think about this consequence. When men become so wicked that God can no longer tolerate him or them in his fellowship, God must repent. That is, change his conduct toward man or cease to be just and holy. He cannot continue to fellowship the wicked, so he has to change because they have changed. God is omniscient. That is, God knows all things. Let me give you another example. And this has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about in Genesis 18 and 19, but let's look at two verses in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. And Jehovah said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. If not, I will know. What, what are you saying, God? He said, well, I've got a rumor that Solomon and Gamar are not like they ought to be, and I've got to go down there and check it out. That's not what he means, is it? This is accommodative language. God knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen. He can see the last day. He can see every movement that we make. He knows what we're going to do. Now, people somehow get confused and they say, well, if he can see that, then we cannot change. Uh, we're, we're bound to be lost or to be saved because he can see which it is. He only sees what we choose. He does not violate man's will that is free. God must repent, change his conduct toward those who are not living as they ought to. How about Jesus and the church in Laodicea? In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven churches. Laodicea is the last one. He says, I know thy works. He knows everything. In verse 16, he says, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth. They were saved at one point in their life. They had obeyed the gospel, but they'd gotten away from the Lord. They'd become lukewarm and indifferent. God said, I can no longer fellowship that. 
That should be a warning to all of us. And he promised to spew them out of their mouth unless they changed. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Revelation 22 and 13. He has always been, he is ever to be. Well, let's look at another part of this Messiah. We look at the S, the Son of the Living God. Two times recorded, there's another time but the words aren't there. In John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus had just come out of the waters of baptism, having been baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And up on the Mount of Transfiguration, again, the voice behind the cloud or from the cloud says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. That's 17 and Jesus is fully deity but he's also fully human he is not 50% deity he's not 50% human when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary said she found favor in God's sight she was going to be the mother of Jesus Jesus, uh, Mary didn't understand that and so he says this Luke 135 the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, Mary, and the power of the Most High, that's God, shall overshadow thee, wherefore also the holy thing, here we have this, the Holy Spirit, we have God the Father, we have the Son, also the holy thing which is begotten shall be called the Son of God. We know that a human father and a human mother would produce a fully and holy human being. I mean, we're all humans because our parents were all humans. The Greek used two words for man. There's a distinction. For example, they use anthropos to refer to mankind, and they use anir to refer to man as the male, in contrast to the female. One of Jesus' favorite expressions was he was the son of man. Now, he did not use Arnir, he used Anthropos. Arnir would have indicated that he had a human father. He said, I am the son of Anthropos. I'm the son of mankind. I'm a human being. The human father and the human mother are distinct persons. And they each give something of their own peculiar nature to the child. And yet, the result is not two persons in the child but only one person with one consciousness and one will and so the fatherhood of God and the motherhood of Mary produce not a double personality in Christ but a single personality all did all human and it was not that Jesus did certain things in his divine and other things in his human nature, as if he were sometimes God and at other times human. In brief, there were not two consciences, not two wills, nor two personalities, but one consciousness, one will, one personality. 
Well, let's look. Well, there's one other thing I should mention. Here's some of the major reasons why Jesus came as a man, the Son of God. Briefly, not preaching a sermon on them. So that we might know God, to take away sin. Jesus came as a man to destroy the works of the devil, to prepare a people for his own possession, to be a mediator between God and man, being both God and man, and to be a high priest. Well, let's look at the suffering servant, the other S in our Messiah. In Hebrews 5 and 8, though he were a son, yet learned he not obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned some things. Remember in Luke 2 and 52, he had been to the Passover with his parents, 12 years of age. He comes home, and this summary statement is about him as he grows up because we don't read any more about him until he begins at the age of 30 his public ministry. He shall grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. That's Luke 2.52. Jesus grew just like other people grow physically. He was born a little baby and he grew up to be a man. And he grew in wisdom, even though he was or is deity. In Luke 2 and 10, for it became him, that's Christ, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's notice some ways in which Jesus suffered. First, he suffered poverty. He selected his own parents. He picked out Mary and Joseph when he was still in heaven. They were poor people. After Jesus was born, being a male, the mother was to go marry at his 40th birthday. <laughs> 40th day birthday. Not 40 years old. If it was a female, it was 80 days. But with males, it was 40 days. And the mother was to offer a lamb. This was the Mosaic law. But if they could not afford a lamb, they could offer two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's what they had to offer. Mary and Joseph could not afford a lamb. They were poor people. Jesus was born into poverty. When he grew up, uh, one came to him and said, I'll go with you wherever you go. This is in Luke 9, 58, 57, 58. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the heaven have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He lived a life of poverty. That's one of the things that he suffered. Also, he suffered temptations. A part of the things he suffered to make him perfect or complete were, were or was temptation. He was tempted in all the ways in which Satan tempts you and me. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. God, pure did, before he came to earth and took upon himself humanity, could not be tempted with evil, James 1.13. But Jesus was tempted. Therefore, Jesus was man. The fact that Jesus could be tempted has led some to deny that Jesus was God. 
since God cannot be tempted with evil. If Jesus had been God alone, he could not have been tempted. If he had been man alone, he would have been tempted and given in to the temptation like the rest of us. But since he was neither God alone nor man alone, but God-man, he was subject to temptation and he could overcome temptation. Hebrews 4 and 15 tells us that we have not a high priest who cannot be, uh, what's the word, cannot be um, moved, I'll use that word, <laughs> but was in all points tempted but without sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not yield to the temptations. Also, he suffered agony in the garden as well as on the cross. Luke adds, Mark, Matthew, and John don't mention this, but when he was in the garden and he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, they all four mentioned that. But Luke mentioned something the others do not mention. And that is, in being in a great agony, uh, a messenger from heaven came to comfort him. And being in a great agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down on the ground. That's Luke 22. His human nature began to sink as unequal to his sufferings. And a messenger from heaven appeared to support him in these heavy trials. Now, it may seem strange that since Jesus was divine, the divine nature did not minister strength to the human. And that he that was God should receive strength from an angel. Doesn't that seem strange? But it needs to be remembered that Jesus came in his human nature. Not only to make an atonement for our sins. But to be a perfect example of a holy man. That as such it was customary or necessary to submit to the common conditions of humanity. That he should live as other men, be sustained as other men, be strengthened as other men, that he should, so to speak, take no advantage of his piety from his divinity, but to submit in all things to the common lot of pious men. Jesus suffered so in that manner in order to be our Savior. Let's look at Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. We read about this in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Remember in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5, he said, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being coming in the, in the manner of, of men. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus voluntarily condescended 
to veil his identity as God by becoming a man. I hope you're all listening. Everybody's awake. In becoming a man, he did not cease to be God, but he did cease to appear in the sight of men to be God. Maybe if Jesus had been like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, his face, his countenance, his clothes, everything was aglow, so bright and white. They might have thought, well, now he's more than a man. They may have just thought, well, he's an angel. But he came as a man to disguise his deity. And though he could not cease to possess the essential attributes of God, for he is immutable, unchangeable, he could and he did forego the right to exercise these attributes because he was a man. Think about this now. He cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, not as the Son of God. In Matthew 12, Jesus cast out a demon. People couldn't deny that. They said, oh, but he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He's one of the devil's demons, and that's where he's getting his power. Jesus said, it's not so. He gave four reasons, but one of them was he did it by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gave him the power. Also, he offered himself, the Bible says, through the eternal spirit. That's Hebrews 9, 14. He gave the commandment of the Great Commission to his apostles, this is in Acts 1, verse 2, to carry the gospel to all the world. And that was done through the Holy Spirit. Read it, Acts 1-2. From this it seems rightly that we may conclude that what he did after his baptism was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was told that he could identify Jesus when he saw the Holy Spirit coming upon him in the form of a dove and abiding upon him, that's John 1-33, and that Abiding is in the present tense. That suggests continuous action, continuous abiding. So, the Holy Spirit continued to abide upon Jesus throughout his public ministry, enabling him to accomplish his ministry on earth. The Holy Spirit did it. Now, we're talking about Emmanuel, his coming, God with us. In John 14, Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Jesus seemed a little bit disappointed. He said, have I been so long time with you? And you say, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me and I'm in he and he's working through me. Well, how did they see God when they saw Jesus? Well, the answer is in his divine character. Think about this. 
the men, like these apostles and other disciples, saw the Son. What did they see? They saw the Father. They saw the Father's mercy and the Father's wisdom and the Father's power and his purity, his grace, his love, his willingness to keep his word and his promises, to be lowly. They saw his long-suffering, his peace, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, keeping his word, his promises, his holiness, his self-control, and you can go on and on and on. What did they see? God with us. Jesus manifested the Father in his divine character. Also, he was the anointed. Now, the practice of anointing goes all the way back to the patriarchal period. The first time it's mentioned is in the life of Jacob, when he anointed the stone that he had used for his pillow. But anointing was of three kinds. There was ordinary anointing, such as a, a wife may do, or a woman with cosmetic using scented oils. There was medical anointing, and then there was sacred anointing, and that's what we're interested in now. We're interested in the sacred anointing. And it had as its purpose the dedicating of things or persons to God. For example, when the tabernacle was constructed and the furnishings, it was all anointed. When the priests had their garments and ready to serve, they were anointed. This is sacred anointing. They anointed the prophets, their priests, and their kings. You remember when the prophet Samuel anointed Saul to be the king of Israel? We read that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And later when he anointed David to be king, we read the very same thing. That the spirit of the Lord came upon him and also that the spirit departed from Saul. Now, from these circumstances, the meaning of the anointing is clear. It symbolized the coming of the Holy Spirit upon God's servant for his work, whether it's to be a priest or a king or a prophet. They were thus set apart and empowered for a particular work in the service of God. Now, let's think about Jesus being anointed. He entered into his messianic ministry. The Holy Spirit descended upon him, as we've already mentioned, in the form of a dove. And he was anointed. Acts 10.38 tells us that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. When did he do it? When the Holy Spirit came upon him. Because he appeared to be a man, he took upon himself humanity. But he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now there's another anointing that's mentioned in Hebrews 1 and 9. Not the same. Let me read it. Therefore God, thy God, this is addressed to Jesus as God. Thy God, the Father. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, and from the context, the fellows must refer to the angels. At least that's what we think. But to be anointed not in a 
a physical sense, but in a figurative sense, with the all of gladness. That is, the joyful effects of his coronation to be the king. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. He was only a prophet on the earth. He could not be a priest. He could not be a king on the earth. He cannot come back to this earth and be a king as the premillennialists want us to believe. It was when he went to heaven and sat down on the right hand of God that he became a priest and he became a king and not before. He was anointed a second time for that very purpose. He was the anointed. And lastly, the H stands for heaven. Heaven is his home. From heaven Jesus came, into heaven he returned, and in heaven he abides. Acts 1, 9 through 11 tells us about Jesus had taken his 11 apostles out to the Garden of Gethsemane up on the Mount of Olives. And there he's telling them certain things, and then suddenly he, he just begins to ascend up into heaven, into the clouds. And two men stand by and they say, you men of Galilee, why stand you here? Looking into heaven, the same Jesus that was taken up into heaven shall so come unto you as you see him going into heaven three times. Jesus was going to come again. He is going to come again. Let me just read one more verse, 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul has been writing Timothy about doing this and that, and then he enters into these words of doxology. He wants to exalt Jesus, and this is the way he does it. And without controversy, great is the mystery, we've got that word again, of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, that's Jesus, justified, that is, vindicated by the Holy Spirit when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit, seen of the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's in heaven. He came from heaven. He's going to come again to take all of us with him who have obeyed him. Shall we not shout Eureka? Having found him, let us rise up and follow him. Let us follow him faithfully, devotedly, lovingly, leaving the world behind. What did Jesus say? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Hebrews 13 and 5. Let us never leave him, nor forsake him. If you're not a child of God, if you're not following in his steps that will lead you to heaven, could we encourage you to obey the gospel this morning? To declare your faith in him as the Son of God and the Messiah. To repent of your sins. To be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. Until you've been buried in baptism for the remission of your sins, you're still a sinner in his sight. And he's going to come again. We want to be ready. If we can help you, would you not come as together we stand and sing?